This is Citations Needed with Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson. Welcome to Citations Needed, a podcast on the media, power, PR, and the history of bullshit. I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. You can follow the show on Twitter at Citations Pod, Facebook, Citations Needed, and become a supporter of the show through patreon.com slash citations needed podcast. All your support through Patreon is incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener funded. Also, if you're so inclined, you can grab some Citations Needed merch from our merch store at bonfire.com. Just search for Citations Needed. Yes, and as always, you can help us out and subscribe on Patreon. There you'll find 120 mini-episodes that we've done throughout the years, as well as a newsletter, extensive show notes, and other goodies. How the Left Created Trump revealed Rob Hoffman and Politico in November 2016. Blame liberals for the rise of Donald Trump, insisted S.E. Cup in the Chicago Tribune the year before. How the Left Enabled Fascism explained David Winner in The New Statesman in 2018. For decades, and ramping up quite a bit since 2016, we've been fed a narrative that the rise of any right-wing tendency is the fault of liberal and leftist skulls. The electoral appeal and success of fascist movements and politicians, we're told, is first and foremost a reaction to blue-haired wokeness warriors whose language and protests alienate and antagonize capital R, capital P, real people. These real people then have no choice but to shift further right where they find a political home, typically with the likes of wealthy full populists like J.D. Vance, Donald Trump, Josh Hawley, and Tucker Carlson that makes them feel included and represents their best interests. It's a convenient refrain. Instead of placing the blame on wealthy and powerful right-wingers and centrists who actually benefit from the preservation of reactionary politics, or giving credit to left-wing activists for challenging devastating right-wing policies, this narrative instead demonizes the powerless, while insisting that those who are fighting for a better world should simply give up, lest their agitative ways turn off potential allies and create another Trump. Who does this narrative benefit? And how do both overtly right-wing and ostensibly liberal legacy media allow it to persist? On today's episode, we'll dissect the popular notion that reactionaries' politics are not the result of their own interest or material forces, but of snarky, out-of-touch lefties who just say too many mean things and simply bring up racism, imperialism, and other injustices too much. And if these lefties simply went away, the Trump right would starve itself to death and be replaced by a moderate, reasonable, national review-friendly political right. Later on the show, we'll be speaking with Daniel Denver, host of The Dig Podcast on Jacobin Radio and author of the book All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It, which was published in 2020 by Verso Books. The culpability of the Republican Party as it's existed for decades in making Trumpism a reality from Goldwater through Reagan, Gingrich's Republican Revolution, the Tea Party, it's pretty obvious why the Weekly Standard Lincoln Project types are complicit in the right becoming ever more just like deranged and why they would not like to be blamed for that. So yeah, this is a thread that goes back a while, but it's really, really been amplified and since 2016 and has gotten much more acute in recent years. And it makes sense because if I'm a well-funded centrist, center-left corporate Democrat or corporate Republican, which I know is a bit of a tautology, And I want to like, and then we have this apparent rise of fascism. It makes MAGA explicitly and overtly vulgar and cruel and 
chauvinist. Like the Adam Sir, where cruelty is the point kind of political party. Right. You sort of need a thing that caused it. And you can't go back to the antecedents in the Republican Party, Reaganism, the John Birch Society, all this kind of stuff that really was the proto version of Trumpism, where we sort of just kept it right under the surface. Maybe not so with Birchism, but with like Reaganism, Bushism, et cetera. And it can't say anything existential or fundamental about our country. So there's a market to find a culprit, right? There's a there's a dead body and we need to sort of have a murderer. And there's an incentive then to say, oh, well, okay, actually it's caused by the left going too far. And that if the left didn't go so far or wasn't so mean or scoldy or woke or whatever kind of, you know, I guess back then, as we'll discuss in 2016, it was identity politics was the big boogeyman. If they didn't bitch and moan so much, there wouldn't have been a, as robust of a market for Trumpism. And what's great about this is it's entirely impossible to know, right? It's sort of entirely unknowable. <laughs> it is entirely unfalsifiable. Who knows how to measure that? No one's attempted to measure that. Without a confirmed murder of the entire left. Right. And so it's this very convenient and very cheesy talking point because on a superficial level, it sort of makes sense. It's like, oh yeah, like there's that one weirdo I saw on Twitter who was like annoying. And I could see why that may drive someone else into the arms of fascism. And of course, nobody themselves will sort of tell you that. And then that therefore kind of gets everybody off the hook and is a twofer, right? Because not only do I kind of justify or kind of obscure the role of the American right, big funders, you know, again, Reaganism, Cook Brothers, all the, uh, the Walton family, all the kind of people who've propped up a Republican party that oftentimes talked in code that led to the rise of Trumpism, you know, your sort of Lou Dobbs, your Fox News, all those sort of guys get off the hook, but I have two for the price of one. Now I'm also disparaging- Condemning the activists. Yeah, blue-haired academics that I sort of hate because I hate academics and I hate gay people and it kind of, it serves both purposes. Well, yeah, you know, to start, I think it's important to refer back to a New York Times editorial from 1859 that we've actually brought up on the show before, Adam. Yeah, this is sort of the original version of this, right? This is the OG of OGs. Yeah, it's like the Northern liberals made me love chattel slavery more than I would have if they had just shut their damn mouth. So this is from the New York Times, Wednesday, January 19th, 1859, written by the Times editorial board. It's headlined The Abolition of Slavery. And after talking about the abolitionist efforts in the North, they talk about abolitionists this way. So again, 1859, the libs made me do it from the New York Times editorial board. They're talking about abolitionists in the North. Quote, they invoke national action upon what is and must remain a local evil. If experience proves anything, it proves that the abolition movement has retarded emancipation and increased the evil it sought to remedy. Until the active crusade of Northern and British abolition was commenced, the public mind in the Southern states was far from having taken on that tone of defiant, resolute hostility to emancipation, which it has since assumed. The thoughtful minds of the South were beginning to consider the relation of slavery to the social and political well-being of the communities where it exists, and to study the possibility of remedy for what was almost universally felt to be an evil. How greatly all this is changed, every day's observation suffices to show, and the change has been perfectly natural and inevitable. The clamor and pressure of abolition was a hostile movement, menacing to the peace and offensive to the pride of southern states. It was resented and resisted as such, 
and thousands of men who had previously been friendly to emancipation were compelled when they found themselves beset by this new peril to abandon their ground or at all events forego all open efforts for its maintenance. Instead of being left to work out their own social problems for themselves, the southern states found themselves compelled to assume the attitude of self-defense. And from that time to this, they have found it perfectly easy to stifle every attempt to discuss the slavery question upon its merits at home by connecting it, however unjustly, in the public mind with this hostile crusade from without. Emancipation in Missouri would be a very easy matter, but for this unfortunate feature of the movement. The article concludes like this, quote, the very best thing that could possibly be done towards the abolition of slavery would be for the North to stop talking about it. 10 years of absolute silence would do more than 50 of turmoil and hostility towards a peaceful removal of this evil. It is quite possible that the abolition crusade may force a bloody and violent termination of the system, but this no sane man desires, and any other solution of the problem is infinitely retarded by the incessant intermeddling of parties who have neither responsibility nor power in this regard to the subject. The great necessity is to let the South alone, to leave them leisure to think of their own affairs, to throw upon them the necessity of studying their own condition and of looking into their their own future. So long as we engross their thoughts by alarming their fears, they have neither time nor inclination to examine the question except from the single point of view. Emancipation, whenever it comes, must be the work of the slave states themselves. They must adopt it from a conviction of its necessity to their own well-being. End quote. Right. So this is the original, the, the libs forced me to be fascists by overplaying their hand. The South was at some point through some kind of moral awakening, I'm not sure through what mechanism or what leverage, but was just going to wake up and decide that slavery was bad and forfeit all their money at their leisure. Literally, their leisure is what they say. Um, so this is kind of the original. So let's fast forward 100 years or so. We saw a similar posture with the Republican victories as a backlash to the sort of hippy-dippy 60s, as well as, of course, the civil rights movement. One example in 1968, when Richard Nixon won the presidential election, it was often said because of the backlash to the civil rights movements and other progressive mobilizations. In May of 1973, the conservative Commentary magazine published an interview with multiple writers headlined Nixon, the Great Society and the Future of Social Policy, a symposium. One of the guests, historian Christopher Lash, posited that multiple reactionary presidents were elected as reactions to the encroachments of those fighting for labor rights and racial justice. Lash would offer the following analysis, quote, the pro-labor legislation of the New Deal set off an anti-labor backlash when unorganized white-collar workers and professionals originally attracted to the New Deal began to feel themselves ground between the millstones of big business and big labor, victimized by inflation and generally ignored by 1952, the middle class were ready for Eisenhower. He would go on to say, quote, the white working class also bore the main burdens of school desegregation while suburban liberals applauded from the sidelines. In addition, the working class and the lower middle class, I guess he just means white, had to suffer the indignity of being called white racist. 
It is not altogether surprising that the white working class now supports Nixon, although not with much enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Right. They begrudgingly, Adam, because they were called racist, had to begrudgingly support Nixon. The indignity of being called racist. Right, exactly. Yeah, this is kind of a Schrodinger's cat here. Did they vote for Nixon before or after they were called racist? We can never really know. (laughs) He would go on to say, quote, a vague sense that things are out of joint, that values and standards are collapsing, that respect for authority has declined, troubles people at almost every social level because the left has only ridiculed these fears. Those who are troubled by the growing disorder they see around them turn to the right, which promises to restore order even in reality. It has no idea how to do so. So to be clear, reaction to left-wing progress is a real thing, right? Reactionary politics, by definition, are reactionary. That's where the name comes from. Yeah. But this analysis doesn't blame the reaction itself, again, funded by cynical and dark forces, funded by far-right anti-communist, you know, aligned with segregationists, aligned with various spook shows. But it's actually the social movements themselves are presented as the cause of it, with the implication being is that if they were just sort of quieter or nicer, or they, they didn't protest at all. Right. If they didn't do as much, right? If they weren't, and certainly if they weren't at all successful. Right. And so we have this analysis of the white working class, which of course is really, they kind of usually just mean white men, I think it's fair to say, or white people as this Hulk-like character where our job is to sort of tiptoe around them and to not unleash the sort of racist Hulk from within. Otherwise, they're just kind of normal, jovial next-door neighbors who mow their lawn, who, who don't possess any reactionary policy ideas or voting habits. And this, again, it sort of achieves two birds with one stone. It sort of justifies and rationalizes and provides a moral justification for reactionary politics for the listener who happens to be voting for these people and also blames what is to a large extent the victims, although there are exceptions, the victims of reactionary politics for their own, they sort of had it coming, right? Right, right. I mean, in other words, we're to believe that activism and advocacy for justice, for expanded rights, representation, recognition of inclusion, and liberation forces otherwise well-meaning, non-ideological people to suddenly just like become foaming bigots, rabid racists, and anti-democratic nativists. Like, that's the cause of it. They weren't that before. Or if they were, it was so dormant that it didn't matter. A similar analysis that left-wing activism necessarily breeds conservatism has been applied to the electoral victory of Ronald Reagan in the 80s. So in March 1985, this is after Reagan's re-election, the Washington Post ran a piece titled Lefties for Reagan, claiming that after both the Cuban Revolution and Vietnam War, the quote-unquote left had become too aggressively anti-imperialist, too anti-American, and mean to the American bourgeoisie, and too soft on Cuba, Vietnam, the Soviet Union, and the DPRK, North Korea. Written by an unnamed but self-identified former, quote, civil rights and anti-war activist, end quote, And the co-author was a co-editor of the New Left Ramparts magazine. As an aside, we now know that these anonymous writers were the Marxist-turned-raging conservative David Horowitz and his frequent collaborator Peter Collier. The piece in the Washington Post in March 1985 explained that, quote, Casting our ballots for Ronald Reagan was indeed a way of finally saying goodbye to the self-aggrandizing romance with corrupt third-worldism to the casual indulgence of Soviet totalitarianism, to the hypocritical and self-dramatizing anti-Americanism, which is the new left's bequest to mainstream politics, end quote. Its penultimate paragraph 
read, quote, We do not accept Reagan's policies chapter and verse, especially in domestic policy, which we haven't discussed here. But we agree with his vision of the world as a place increasingly inhospitable to democracy and increasingly dangerous for America, end quote. The following year, this time published in the Village Voice, David Horowitz wrote an article headlined, quote, Why I am no longer a leftist, end quote. In it, after burnishing his past radical credentials, Horowitz revealed what made him go right. It was his close association with the Black Panther Party, which he described as, quote, a criminal gang that preyed on the black ghetto itself, end quote. Fast forward to the 1990s, this concept became conventional wisdom. Democratic strategist James Carville expanded on this idea in the early 90s as one of Bill Clinton's chief advisors to his campaign. To cite just one example, which happens to be the most infamous, Carville was the architect of Clinton's sister soldier moment in May of 1992 during the campaign in which Carville and Clinton equated sister soldier's lyrics to the hate speech of David Duke because she said she understood why black people may feel resentful towards white people in one of her lyrics. Clinton then got up in front of a room full of black leaders, including Jesse Jackson, and officially denounced sister soldier to pander to racist sentiments. Carville has made his career out of pushing similar kind of left punching in racist pandering because he believes that that's the sort of avenue to win broad political politics. Right. Again, back to the idea of the real people, right? What the real people want. Yeah. Asterisks without upsetting rich liberal donors, right? That's really the kind of huge qualifier here because there are certainly other means you can build coalitions. But if you're going to not want to piss off rich, liberal, almost exclusively white donors, one way to do it is to find African-American one-offs to make an example of to do a cheap pot shot and to earn credibility from the Washington Post editorial board crowd with the general idea that you don't want to alienate the so-called white working class and so you have to just pander to their racism. Now, this really began to accelerate, of course, with the rise of Trump. Yeah, I mean, in the mid-2010s, we saw this over and over again. So, for example, writing an opinion piece for the Washington Tribune in 2015 during the campaign, conservative commentator S.E. Cup proclaimed that readers should, quote, blame liberals for the rise of Donald Trump, end quote. She attributed Trump's popularity to a reaction against what she termed, quote, unrelenting demands by the left for increasingly preposterous levels of political correctness over the past decade, end quote. Trump, S.E. Cup continued, quote, is seen as the antidote, end quote. Similarly, a Politico article written by Rob Hoffman from November 20th, 2016, just after the election, was headlined, quote, how the left created Trump. And in it, he characterized Trump's rise as the fault of a perceived ascendant liberalism and activism, seeming to make the point that we shouldn't even try to improve the lives of the majority of people, lest it backfire in the form of resentment politics and put a right-wing firebrand in power, as had just happened. Hoffman writes this again in Politico from 2016, quote, Trump's rise in popularity and ultimately his election to the presidency should be seen as a long building reaction to grassroots liberal activism that came to dominate the cultural landscape and claim victory after victory in the social arena, whether the issue was abortion or gay marriage or transgender rights, always accompanied by that same disdain for right-wing views as worthy of the Stone Age, end quote. Hoffman would then continue, quote, while there is a clear need to rectify the indisputable disadvantages faced by America's marginalized peoples from the LGBTQ community to Muslims and people of color, 
Trump's victory seems to indicate that unmitigated social activism can have unintended consequences, end quote. Nominally, at that point, progressive David Rubin, who ended up just becoming a right-winger, as most of these guys do, who then was working for the Young Turks, tweeted out after Trump's election, quote, it's almost as if if you endlessly call people bigots and racists, they'll eventually get fed up and turn on you. Because as we all know, the sun did not exist until the Babylonians gave it a name. So I did a recap of all this in November 2016 for FAIR for my article, Lashing Out at Identity Politics, Pundits Blame Trump for Those Most Vulnerable to Trump. So this is before the term woke became the go-to racialized pejorative. Right. It was still political correctness, PC politics. Yeah. So it began just three days after the election where Evergreen PC blamer Bill Maher uh, said the following to his roundtable of clapping seal guests. You're outrageous with your political correct bullshit, and it does drive people away. And to Islam, you know, Islam, they, they don't, Democrats, there's a terrorist attack, and Democrats' reaction is, don't be mean to Muslims instead of how can we solve the problem of shit blowing up in America. Two days later, Vox would run a softball interview with John Haidt, uh, NYU social psychologist and uh, noted diversity skeptic, to put it politely, whose big thing is about stereotype denial. The headline said, why social media is terrible for multi-ethnic democracies, which is sort of portends a very bad take. Ezra Klein tweeted out the article saying, interesting, John Hayden, why diversity, immigration, and multiculturalism are ripping apart Western democracies. So here we got some real victim blaming coming up. Ponder it. Yeah. And which hate says, quote, multiculturalism, diversity have many benefits, including creativity and economic dynamism. But they also have major drawbacks, which is that they reduce, generally reduce social capital and trust and amplify tribal tendencies. That's a chin stroker. Yeah. So similarly, David Brooks in the New York Times would write this, the danger of a dominant identity in it writing, quote, but it's not only racists who reduce people to a single identity. These days, it's the anti-racists, too. To raise money and mobilize people, advocates play up ethnic categories to an extreme degree, end quote. Yeah, so here we have a classic, uh, they're racist because you call them racist, and the anti-racists are actually just as bad as the racists. They're just like racists. Literally the same thing. The very same day that David Brooks wrote that in the Times, the Washington Post published good old George Will with an article, Higher Education is Awash with Hysteria. That might have helped elect Trump. And in the piece, Will cites a whole bunch of one-off anecdotal stories of your typical PC college lefty and tells the reader this, quote, academia should consider how it contributed to and reflects Americans' judgments pertinent to Donald Trump's election. The compound of childishness and condescension radiating from campuses is a reminder to normal Americans of the decay of protected classes, in this case, tenured faculty and cosseted students, end quote. Uh, yes, the uh, adjuncts making $26,000 are protected classes. Mark Lilla in the New York Times, also the exact same date. The George Will, David Brooks, and Mark Lilla articles are all on November 18th, 10 days after the election, called The End of Identity Liberalism. Clearly, there was some memo about when we need to blame gay people on college campuses for Trump. Yeah. They were like, we're like 10 days into this. We got we, we to gotta put out the message. Oh, yeah. There needs to be scapegoats because this is before they quite settled on Russia. It's in sort of, you know, Jill Stein voters. They need it. It's anyone but the Clinton campaign, right? Or the fact that America is also just extremely foaming and reactionary. So the same day, literally the exact same day as the George Hill and David Brooks piece on November 18th, 2016, the New York Times also published Mark Lilla's essay, The End of Identity Liberalism, 
in which he wrote, quote, but when it came to life at home, she, being uh, Hillary Clinton, tended on the campaign trail to lose that large vision and slip into rhetoric of diversity, calling out explicitly to African-Americans, Latino, LGBT, and women voters at every stop. This was a strategic mistake. If you're going to mention groups in America, you had better mention them all. If you don't, those left out will notice and feel excluded, which as the data show is exactly what happened while the white working class and those with strong religious convictions end quote. Uh, it seems like a bit of an oversimplification of what happened. Just asserted there's no, there's no evidence for this. And then, of course, he takes this sort of glib pot shot at transgender people, which is required by law when doing these takes. He would go on to say, quote, recently I performed a little experiment during a sabbatical in France. Oh, yeah. I love uh, such a relatable working class guy here, sabbatical in France. He would go on to write, quote, for a full year, I read only European publications, not American ones. Again, sorry to keep editorializing, but that's not true at all. He would go on to say, quote, my thought was to try seeing the world as the European readers did, but it was far more instructive to return home and realize how the lens of identity has transformed American reporting in recent years. How often, for example, the laziest story in American journalism about the first X to do Y is told and retold. Fascination with the identity drama has even affected foreign reporting, which is distressingly in short supply. However interesting it may be to read, say, about the fate of transgender people in Egypt, it contributes nothing to educating Americans about the powerful political and religious currents that will determine Egypt's future and indirectly our own. No major news outlet in Europe would think of adopting such a focus, end quote. Except, of course, a European paper did. The Guardian actually had a very long profile on a transgendered activist in Egypt the previous year. But he apparently um, wanted to make a claim about the fact that Europe would never do this thing that, in fact, a European publication did. Well, and it's such a smug reference, right? Transgender people in Egypt. I mean, like... It, well, it's so trivializing. Yeah, like, oh, who cares? That has no real you know, bearing on the reality of politics, right? And yet Americans are so focused on identity to the detriment of the real issues. It's a really strange take, obviously, but one that does a lot of heavy lifting in terms of who Mark Lilla and, you know, by extension, those who agree with him seek to blame for our political fortunes and who they absolve, of course. In September of the next year, from all of these articles, this now being 2017, The Atlantic ran a piece by writer Peter Beinart entitled, quote, The Rise of the Violent Left, end quote, which blamed many of the usual suspects, climate and racial justice demonstrators in Portland and Berkeley, Antifa, anarchists and the like for, quote, fueling the fears of Trump supporters, end quote, and thus accelerating right-wing authoritarianism. Specifically, Barnard lamented the loosely defined group's efforts to prevent fascists from holding rallies and other political events, telling a supposedly cautionary tale to the harms of the so-called violent left. Bynott wrote this, quote, when anti-fascists forced the cancellation of the 82nd Avenue of Roses Parade, Trump supporters responded with a march for free speech. Among those who attended was Jeremy Christian, a burly ex-con draped in an American flag who uttered racial slurs and made Nazi salutes. A few weeks later, on May 25th, a man believed to be Christian was filmed calling Antifa, quote, a bunch of punk bitches, end quote. The next day, Christian boarded a light rail train and began yelling that colored people were ruining the city. He fixed his attention on two teenage girls, one African-American and the other wearing a hijab, and told them, quote, to go back to Saudi Arabia or kill themselves, end quote. As the girls retreated to the back of the train, three men interposed themselves between Christian and his targets. Please, one said, get off this train. Christian stabbed all three. One bled to death on the train. One was declared dead at the local hospital. One survived, end quote. 
Beinart concludes his piece like this, quote, revulsion, fear, and rage are understandable. But one thing is clear. The people preventing Republicans from safely assembling on the streets of Portland may consider themselves fierce opponents of the authoritarianism growing on the American right. In truth, however, they are its unlikeliest allies, end quote. Now, interestingly, Beinart cites no examples of physical violence from the so-called the violent left, which is the title of the piece, but however, he recounts multiple acts of violence from the right, yet those on the right, he's claiming, are apparently the real victims here, right? Prevented from exercising their rights, which then doubles back on itself and turns them violent because, you know, those pesky black blockers just want to infringe on Republicans' rights to speak or to peacefully assemble. And so therefore, the backlash is their fault, right? Is Antifa's fault. Yeah, the, the sort of these na- white nationalists were kind of otherwise going to go about their business until they were provoked. One of the more annoying examples of this, and someone we talk about on the show quite a bit because he's horrible, is Senator-elect from Ohio, J.D. Vance. The uh, New York Post ran a piece in June of 2021, headline, How Liberals Turned on J.D. Vance, Working Class Author of Hillbilly Elegy, Working Class... It's, of course, a strange descriptor for someone who has a law degree from Yale, worked in a corporate law firm and a number of Silicon Valley investment firms and hedge funds, including Peter Thiel's venture capital firm. And he's now worth estimated over $7 million. But nevertheless, the article contends that liberals and leading media figures fell in love with J.D. Vance in 2016 and 2017 when Hillbilly Elegy was released, but then abandoned him as he expressed openly right-wing political ambitions and points of views. This is, of course, kind of true. But uh, Vance is quoted as saying in the article, quote, once it became clear that I was more on the side of Trump and the conservatives than I was on the side of the left, it went pretty hard. Before Trump was elected, people were trying to understand the forgotten man, the white working class, however you want to put it. After Trump won, it quickly became one of two things. Either these voters are all racist or Russia hacked the election. The whole culture of the media has shifted from let's try to understand the other half of the country to let's beat up the other half of the country, end quote. Months later, in January of 2022, the Washington Post chimed in to speculate on why Vance had, quote, adopted a bellicose persona at odds with a sensitive bookish JD of his memoir. A headline, the, the radicalization of JD Vance, the analysis threw in some obligatory light criticisms here and there, but was rather incredibly naive and was peddling PR for Vance. It would write, quote, Vance's new political identity isn't as much as a facade or reversal as an expression of an alienated worldview that is in fact consistent with his life story. And now there's an ideological home for that worldview. Vance has become one of the leading political avatars of the emergent populist intellectual persuasion that tax right on culture and left on economics, unquote, which of course is absolutely not true that they turn left on economics. That's a total fabrication. The piece provides no support for that. He does not support unions. Yeah, it's a total lie, but whatever. The piece would go on to say, quote, the project is animated by a real life political gambit that as progressives weaken the Democratic Party with unpopular cultural attitudes. I love the idea of cultural attitudes. Like it's kind of this, it's the, it's an affect rather than like a thing they're fighting for, like not wanting to genocide trans people or, or want to protect immigrants or don't think police should be able to club people with it. These are cultural attitudes. Not, these are not material issues. And the piece will go on to say, quote, that the right can swoop in and pick off multiracial working class voters. Evidently, we're expected to believe in this uh, article that Vance and his, and his right wing funders who constantly lambast wokeness in China as a threat to the American worker, that they somehow really want to attract a multiracial voter is kind of in earnest. In a post from July 3rd, 2021, written by Kevin Drum, headlined, if you hate the culture wars, blame liberals. 
Drum writes this, quote, Democrats have stoked the culture wars by getting more extreme on social issues, and Republicans have used this to successfully cleave away a segment of both the non-college white vote and more recently, the non-college non-white vote, end quote. And of course, how can we not mention James Carville just one more time when that same month, July 2021, he took to CNN to deliver his perennial message that any policy with the faintest whiff of meaningful change would be electoral poison for the Democrats. Now, this is after Carville gave an interview with Vox in the spring of that year, making the same exact point. In both interviews, Carville also insisted that terms like, quote, communities of color and the term Latinx not say things like austerity politics or violent rhetoric toward gay and transgender people, that those terms, communities of color and Latinx, would alienate potential Democratic voters. And on a November 3rd, 2021 episode of PBS NewsHour, host Judy Woodruff asked Carville why he believed Republican Glenn Youngkin defeated Democrat Terry McAuliffe in the Virginia gubernatorial race and what went wrong for the Democratic Party. Here is Carville's response. But what went wrong was just stupid wokeness. All right, you don't just look at Virginia and New Jersey. Look at Long Island. Look at Buffalo. Look at Minneapolis. Even look at Seattle, Washington. I mean, just defund the police lunacy to take Abraham Lincoln's name off of schools. I mean, that people see that, and it it it, it it's it's just really have a suppressive effect all across the country. The Democrats. Some of these people need to go to a woke detox center or something. I mean, that they're, they're expressing a language that people just don't use. And there's a backlash and a frustration at that. Yeah. And again, with all of these, Terry McAuliffe was the most anti-woke, normie, white, McKinsey and company candidate. So it's the one of the beauties of this idea that like the far left is responsible for the right is that even if the far left has no power, if they don't win any primaries, if they have no say or constituency within a centrist, normie, CIA, Wall Street guy, milquetoast guy they throw up to run against Republicans, that they're staining the brand. So it's, again, it goes back to being unfalsifiable. So even someone like Terry McCullough, the kind of insider's insider's insider, right? When he loses, it's still wokeness's fault. It's a skeleton key for whatever problem we have. It doesn't matter what it is. It's the overreaching left's problem. Yeah, the wokes did it. Right. It's not that the guy was uncharismatic or that he didn't provide any vision for the future or didn't provide an alternative narrative to the fears around critical race theory and other kind of right-wing boogeymen or didn't respond aggressively enough, that he didn't stand for anything. No, it's the fact that students at the University of you know whatever bullshit liberal arts school were too mean on some story on Tucker. I mean, again, I, it's unclear how you can even measure these things, much less like overcome it, right? Because if you're going to nominate all the anti-woke guys from Biden to McAuliffe to whatever, and they still lose, that they're still going to somehow blame the wokes, even though they have, again, they have zero actual power. Because it's a win-win situation, you can't lose. To discuss this more, we're now going to be joined by Daniel Denver, host of the Dig podcast on Jacobin Radio and author of the book, All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It, which was published by Verso Books in 2020. Dan's going to join us in just a moment. Stay with us. We are joined now by Daniel Denver. Dan, great to have you back on Citations Needed. Really great to be here. I love your podcast. Oh, well, thank you. And all yours. Uh, so I'm excited to have you on to talk about this. I'm very excited to talk about this topic in general, but specifically with you, because I know it's something that you've thought a lot about. 
But this the idea that the left kind of pushes otherwise sensible normie liberals and centrist into the arms of the far right, it's a trope that dates back many years, if not decades, as we documented at the top of the show, but it really kind of began to accelerate and became its own subgenre take with the rise of Trump in 2015 and 2016. So I want to sort of begin there. There was a cottage industry of explanations as to why a plurality of voters elected such an objectively vile, cruel, and racist person in Trump. And the idea that a sizable chunk of these voters did so not because they agreed with the vile, cruel, and racist positions of Trump, but because they wanted to sort of strike a blow, a protest blow against the woke far left contingent. This was kind of before woke became the preferred racialized pejorative. This was back when it was political correctness or any other kind of shorthand for that, trans bathrooms or whatever. Days after the election, David Brooks, Bill Maher, Mark Lilla, John Haidt, and many others blame so-called identity politics for driving people to Trump. I want to sort of begin at that point, November, December of 2016. Why do you think this narrative was so attractive? It's obviously very unfalsifiable. Like, I don't know how to show that's not true. I mean, I guess maybe there is some statistical way that you may be aware of, but it does seem like it sort of gets everybody off the hook. That's why you're here, yeah. to prove John hate right. Yeah. Did you do a statistical analysis? But I want you to talk about why you think that's attractive and who it kind of served and why, because it was very, very common immediately after the election. Yeah. I mean, I will first answer the question of why it's attractive, what function it serves. But I would later on like to attempt to demonstrate that it's definitely verifiably false. So why do people blame left-wing woke mobs for driving otherwise calm, reasonable, sensible Americans into becoming far-right extremists? I mean, the narrative, like you suggested, is attractive to extreme centrist pundits and politicians because it washes the hands of the neoliberalized Democratic Party and the old Republican establishment of any culpability for making MAGA a reality. Instead, conveniently, it blames us, their political opponents on the left. And I mean, I can't say for sure if that's their intention. Some of the people making the argument, I imagine, probably sincerely believe it or whatever that means. Right. But that is the argument's principal function, without a doubt. The culpability is very clear here. The Republican Party, I mean, it's almost not even worth repeating because it's so obvious the culpability of the Republican Party as it's existed for decades in making Trumpism a reality from Goldwater through Reagan, Gingrich's Republican Revolution, the Tea Party, it's pretty obvious why the Weekly Standard Lincoln Project types are complicit in the right becoming ever more just like deranged and why they would not like to be blamed for that. But the Democratic Party is also very, very complicit here as well, which is less obvious to a lot of people. I mean, you mentioned the book that I published in 2020, which was basically about the Democratic Party's role in working with Republicans to preside over just the steady immiseration of working class Americans for decades and decades, and then legitimating the demonization of immigrants as the scapegoat, the principal scapegoat mm -hmm. for that immiseration. So the function it serves is pretty clear, and it's to get them off the hook for the monster they've created. Yeah, I mean, part of this also speaks to, I mean, something we've talked about a whole bunch on Citations Needed, which is this idea of civility. The left has gotten so shouty, right? And so cancel-y. <laughs> That's really what's doing it. Like, people just don't want to hear that anymore. And yet, somehow, then the alleged reaction to the breakdown of civility in politics is 
not somehow to go to, <laughs> you know, those who maybe collectively want to make people's lives materially better or, you know, enhance <laughs> access to rights, uh, right, that should be inalienable or uh, at least legally enshrined. But no, the woke mob is so annoyingly shrill that the only recourse, the only refuge for the normals who just, you know, don't want to hear that cacophony anymore, is to go, like, full-blown Nazi. Like, what do you think this idea of the, you know, reaction to this kind of scoldy shrillness is to then be like, oh, I can finally be the Dennis Leary asshole that I truly am. And you made me do it. Yeah. <laughs> to paraphrase Michelle Obama for years back, you know, when we go low, you know, they go into the burning pits of the deepest hell. That's what you get for going low is just people becoming absolute Nazis for just being mean on the Internet, even for a moment, that one moment of weakness. I mean, one basic problem here is that this constant focus on, you know, the so-called swing voters in the middle who are swinging between Democrats and Republicans, which totally ignores. And this is insight and insight other people have had. I'm not making this up here, but ignores the swing voters on the left, people who are swinging between voting for Democrats and voting for a third party or voting more likely for absolutely no one at all because they're totally alienated from a political system that has done nothing for them their entire lives. So Republicans understand the importance of keeping their base fired up. Democrats hold their base in contempt. So that's one problem is the whole basic framing of which voters we're concerned about. But I will stipulate that it's indeed a problem that a increasing proportion in recent decades of white working class people have been voting Republican, particularly since the great financial crisis. And the problem with the argument that blames wokeness for doing that is, and this is where my promised demonstration <laughs> using history that this is wrong, that blames wokeness is that it gets the historical sequencing all wrong. White working class people did not get pushed out of the Democratic coalition by anti-police protests or people with pronouns. They were pushed out by the Democratic establishment. This was the project of the New Democrats led by Bill Clinton. It was their explicit program, something that Lily Geismer, this amazing historian, has written about at great length, an explicit program of turning away from the working class, not just the white working class, but the whole working class, mm -hmm. turning away from them and unions towards suburbanites and professionals. And so white working class people not all of them, but many, were for much of the 20th century embedded in the Democratic Party through institutions, namely labor unions. And those unions had a certain position in the United States' social, political, economic order. And what happened was the neoliberalized Democratic Party alongside American capitalism going into crisis in the 70s and reconstituting itself in neoliberal form, that severed the link between working class people, including but by no means exclusively white working class people, severed them from the Democratic Party by separating them from those unionized jobs and from their unions, and then imposing a new economic and social order with an entirely different moral sensibility. This, you know, there was an ethos, I'm not trying to be Pollyannish about the past by any means, but you know, ethos of solidarity and social welfare replaced by one that prizes individual achievement in a zero-sum world. So there are these moments of crisis that the Democratic Party has exploited to drive working class people away from the party. And Obama is a case in point here. On the eve of Obama's election, working class white voters measured very imperfectly by non-college graduates, they were more or less evenly split between the two major parties. And I mean, and that doesn't include the large number who were alienated and not voting for anyone. But today, it's two thirds nearly voting Republican. So 
what happened? What happened was a once in a generation event, the global financial crisis and the government's response to it, a once in a generation event that had the capacity to radically remake people's identities, subjectivities, political allegiances. And the Democratic Party, led by Obama at the time, was perceived, understandably, as bailing out the banks, whereas the right with the Tea Party swept in and framed the crisis as one where big government had allied simultaneously with like the greedy big banks and the parasitic poor people to screw over hardworking everyday Americans. And we, I just can't overemphasize enough how critical that 2010 election that wiped out Democratic state legislators that would never be reelected in places all over this country. Obama won Indiana. Something like that will never <laughs> you know, or not anytime soon happen again. Those are the kind of things that radically remake people's political consciousnesses, identities, and allegiances, not like getting annoyed by something someone said to them on Twitter. It's just an absurd assessment of how history operates. Yeah, I think that's what made the kind of Hillary Clinton adopting this kind of DEI language in 2016 so bizarre <laughs> because her husband and her 2008 campaign against Obama deliberately played to racism and pandered to racism. Remember, hardworking white Americans, uh, obviously Clinton, who had his... Because again, if you're, if you're doing the sort of unpopular neoliberal economic policy, you have kind of two tracks to try to pick off the so-called moderate white swing voter. You can appeal to upwardly mobile professionals using superficial appeals to you know social justice that don't really mean much, but kind of sound good for people with law degrees. Or you can try to peel off Bubba with racism. They did the Baba racism thing in the 90s quite explicitly. And then suddenly around 2014, there was this shift where, oh, actually, no, Bernie Sanders and all his supporters are racist and we're the anti. I mean, I'm just like, what? What'd you, wait, 2008, you ran the most, like, you ran a pretty shamefully race baiting campaign against Obama. And I think that kind of shows you that they realized that they had got as much out of that lane as they could. And then realized that the only thing that they needed some kind of angle to latch onto. And so, they adopted a kind of superficial, for want of a better term, identity politics. So that always struck me as strange. People have the memory of goldfish, but I want to <laughs> I want to sort of be fair here and kind of try to prop up the strongest argument for those who make this point. Strong being a relative term because I don't think it's actually that strong, which is the idea that liberals and leftists have increasingly been quick to banish, yell at, censor, morally condemn, rather than try to convince or argue. I think this is kind of true, but I also think it emerged from a place of frustration with a concern troll posture from the right where you always, you constantly had to re-litigate and debate the basic humanity of black people, trans people, gay people. And that kind of gets exhausting after a while. Cause like, I don't think Danush DeSouza is really interested in having a debate. I don't think the 75th debate on the campus of Middlebury College is really going to be very, like, so I, I, a part of me is like, yeah, okay. So we decided just to yell at people that works. Yeah, that's fine with me. But I want to sort of talk about this dynamic because on the you know one hand, I do think that is kind of true. But again, I also think it's sort of Pollyannish about where the professional right comes into play, which is I don't think they're really concerned with debate. To me, it's about the power dynamics of the person you're talking to or trying to convince, right? Like, I don't think, like, Brett Stevens recently published a column where he said, oh, I, you know, I was finally convinced of the truth of climate change because I flew out to Greenland. And I'm like, you know what I love about this praxis is how scalable it is. <laughs> I could just fly every, every climate denying American out to Greenland for the price of $7 trillion. Maybe we can convince 51.4% of them to, yeah. And it won't cost a lot of carbon either to do that. Yeah, exactly. And John Chait says, oh, look, you know, John Chait holds it up and says, look what happens when you try to convince rather than try to get someone fired. I'm like, but Brett Stevens is not like some normie, like 
26-year-old, half-Latino, half-white Uber driver who listens to Joe Rogan and is curious about, who has a kind of hodgepodge. He's not some under... He's a political operative who's there to sort of repackage the post-Trump Republican Party. And that, to me, seems the issue. I think, like, all these people, all these centrists, all, you know, the Bill Mars and Lillas, all the people I notice on Twitter, they get yelled at all day and they, like, they say, oh, well, this is not good politics. And it's like, yeah, because you're a rich piece of shit who's not going to be convincible anyway, this is not like door-to-door retail politics, which most union organizers and people who do real organizing around these things, this is a different, it may as well be in fucking Greek or Chinese, right? It doesn't mean anything to them. So I want you to talk about this idea that the left has gotten super scoldy. I think that's true in certain contexts, but I actually think it's mostly not true, but maybe I'm pandering to our listeners. I don't know. Tell me if you think that's a fair description of, of the criticism. Yeah. I mean, first, before I answer that, I do want to very much agree with what you said at the top of your question about Clinton era social politics. I think it is very important given just how unhinged from historical reality the debate over all of this has become today. Very important to emphasize that the very same neoliberalized Democratic Party that in the 90s was so aggressively selling out the working class, white and otherwise, was not at all woke, like not a little bit. Very, very reactionary. Their attempts to woo this more high-end constituency were accompanied by a major crackdown on immigrants, the end of welfare as we knew it, mass policing and mass incarceration. Ricky Ray Rector. Yeah, Ricky Rector. The Defense of Marriage Act. So, yeah, I mean, that's an important piece of context. But to answer your question, I think it's very safe to say that people like Brett Stevens having a fragile ego does not explain deep structural transformations in American politics that have taken place in the last few decades. That just doesn't make sense. So, yes, yell at Brett Stevens if that makes you feel good on Twitter. And it's probably like there's probably something healthy about that, maybe. But yes, that is very different from yelling at individuals, which like, you know, ordinary everyday people, whatever, yelling at individuals is not the way to change their mind. In fact, you can't really change people's minds at all. I don't think by talking to them, even if it's really nice. I mean, and to the extent that you can, sometimes that doesn't create the sort of system level mass changes in ideology that we need to change politics in this country. You have to pair the convincing with some meaningful material policy changes. Right. You need to see the benefit. Right. Yeah. And people need to be re-embedded in communities, organizations, institutions like unions, which I keep returning to. And there is actually good social scientific research. Being a member of a union makes you less likely to be racist. And before your listeners yell at you, yes, of course, there are many racists who are members of labor unions, but it does make people less racist, which is not shocking, just as the dismantling of unions made people available for right-wing ideology in a way that they were less available to when they were union members. Like the corollary of that's true, which is that we have to recreate institutions where people can build power together through concrete struggles over the conditions of their own lives, whether as workers, as tenants, as over-policed people, whatever. And then that's how people's minds Mm -hmm. change, but not through like, just as people's minds don't get changed to the right by encountering scoldy people on the left on Twitter. And it can be scoldy, but mostly that just like kind of makes it suck to be on the left sometimes is how like shitty we are to each other on Twitter. That's like the shitty thing about that. And people should be better comrades. I think that's like the real problem that there's so much sectarianism and meanness within the left, but that's not turning people in some structural big way into right wingers. Yeah, it does, it's, uh, it's bizarre. I, I mean, people are just too online as well. And so they they are political analysis and they don't read their, you know, people like Brett Stevens probably don't read that many 
books. I mean, the flight to Greenland is pretty long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but their analysis is based on whatever annoys them on Twitter. Well, right. I mean, so much of this, I think, speaks to, I'm going to talk about Adam as if he's not here right now, to a piece that Adam wrote <laughs> in FAIR way back in uh, 2016, this idea that the reactionary ideological switcheroo effectively blames the victims of the far right for the power of the far right, right? Like, it's not a call-in from a concerned ally. It's rather painting anyone with any social justice grievance as fundamentally anti-white, right? Like an anti-white radical that's out to get you, get your family, get your job, whatever, right? Can we talk about this idea that the white male voter is again centered in this entire frame of argument or political understanding as like a Hulk-like, you know, creature, and that the point of moderate, sensible, again, kind of civil politics is to avoid at all costs awakening the beast of their inner reactionary. Yeah, I mean, first, like I said before, it's a weird, obsessive focus on a certain portion of the electorate, but that said, that portion does matter, as do other portions in terms of winning, which is a big part of what I think we're all thinking about when we choose to think about electoral politics. And beyond electoral politics, people's ideologies matter for a lot of other reasons that are of interest to us on the left, beyond presidential, congressional, gubernatorial, whatever elections. So it assumes uh, it's like bizarrely infantilizing, as though white working class people like operate their brains operate in like a distinctly different way than others that I think is probably generated mostly amongst white professionals who only have a sort of like distant national geographic like national geographic like relationship to white working class people it doesn't at all explain how different forms of identity can become more or less salient for a person? Is their identity as part of a working class that might be multiracial more salient? Or is their identity as white people more salient or as Americans or as white Americans? There are all kinds of identities that people inhabit often simultaneously. And that history that we were talking about earlier, that history particularly of since the neoliberal turn, disembedding people from organizations that created a grounded material basis for more progressive ideologies, that vacuum is then filled by other identities like whiteness and just presuming that there's some like timeless immemorial, I don't know, like Scotch-Irish sensibility or something that makes all white working class people tick. And if you use a pronoun in front of them, they're going to go fascist. It doesn't allow us to understand how white working class people have behaved in very different ways politically, in very different moments, in very different contexts throughout American history. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. They're all just like subjects from like Walker Evans photographs. Because the other side of the coin, I think, has the similar, suffers from similar fallacies, which is that there's this kind of fixed and extraably racist white working class voter who there's like, you should make zero effort to try to win over in any way which is its own form of anti-politics, right? Because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, what the fuck are we doing then? Yes. The point of politics is an evangelical enterprise, and I don't know of any evangelical enterprise, whether it's, you know, baptism or Methodism or, 
Islam or communism, where you write off whole populations. You know, one third of the country is white men, right? And then I guess suddenly, again, this meaningful percentage who voted for Obama, but then voted for Trump, that they got more racist, I guess. Like, I don't know how that works exactly, or they were not racist. But anyway, it's confusing to me. And this serves a similar function that these are kind of non-dynamic, you know, the kind of the, the extreme centrist says we have to pander to their racism and not spook them with Black Lives Matter or George Floyd. But then the corporate liberal mercenary says, oh, well, they're all, fuck them anyway, let's just ignore them. Because the real reason, of course, they do that is because they don't want to address economic populism as one way of rearranging those identities, right? That it is a sort of fixed moral failing on the part of people and that it's a useless waste of time to try to win them over. And it's like, yeah, I mean, again, politics are about coalitions and those things get really messy. And if you just had coalitions with people who had the most perfect ideological proclivities, then you really would never build coalitions, but that's different than like, are they, you know, but at the same time, obviously you're not going to build a political coalition with, with Richard Spencer because he also supports Medicare for all, right? I mean, there are limits to that, obviously, but you can't be that precious about these things. And it strikes me as the, both of those dynamics serve a similar function, which is to say, yeah, there's nothing we can do. So let's all just forget any kind of rearranging of, of economic left-wing politics. And let's just sort of assume that everything's fixed and hand millions of dollars over to consultants. Yeah. And I mean, that goes back to the distinction that you were drawing earlier about the difference of how to think about relating to right-wing leaders and ordinary people with right-wing ideas. And I'm doing a bunch of tenant organizing right now in Rhode Island, and a couple of our tenant leaders are without a doubt Trump supporters. But in terms of the campaign, they are behaving like communists. Right. <laughs> I hope they're not listening to this. <laughs> um, this will um, not and, be shared with them. <laughs> and that is, is that a, like a complex and contradictory and sometimes uncomfortable process? Definitely. Is it the only way I believe that we can build working class and left wing power in this country? Also, yes. But yeah, I mean, I think that's right that there is a corollary on the left and particularly maybe amongst like liberal elites to this argument that like, you know, don't bang on the white working class guy's cage or he'll flip out, which is, as you say, this argument that any kind of push forward for racial justice or justice for any sort of oppressed people will inevitably face white racist reaction because white people are just fundamentally, like almost biologically racist. And there's some truth to the fact that any push forward for justice for oppressed groups will elicit a reaction, given that the history of this country is so thoroughly racist, something we don't need to get into the details of for citations needed. Listeners, it is true that, you know, for example, any attempt to include excluded people into the mid-20th century social and economic New Deal compact would have generated some white racist reaction. I mean, Adam, you're you're in Chicago where black people, when they tried to move into white neighborhoods, got their houses firebombed. And that was the kind of violence that black people faced in their struggle to, in a sense, universalize the New Deal promise from which they'd been excluded mm -hmm. in the 1960s and 70s. Thankfully, I'm in New York where there's never been racism. Where everything's been totally chill as Spike Lee has demonstrated in his uh, past films. And as current education and housing policy continues to affirm. Yes, everything's like very chill, lots of uh, multiracial bonhomie, uh, definitely no problems to look at, especially in what are those schools called? Those admit only schools. <laughs> but Adam, like you said, like the analysis has to be more dynamic in that. So looking back to that history, which I think is really key, in the 60s and 70s, this push to universalize 
the promises of economic security of the New Deal from which black people had been excluded, it took place at the very moment when that system, in part because of those exclusions, was going into severe crisis. There was a crisis because of stagflation, the oil shock, intensifying global competition, and capitalists. So capitalists were tearing up the New Deal settlement and going on the offensive against labor and against the welfare state at the very moment that women, black people, queer people, etc., were fighting to get a piece of something. And it was getting torn apart at that very moment. So that means that in that moment, white people are reacting to this in a context of newly intensified scarcity. If that context had been one of plenty, instead one of a deepening welfare state rather than one that was getting eviscerated, I think that would have mitigated, though certainly not eliminated, the white reaction. Like, things are dynamic. Yeah, abundance will create different outcomes than austerity, right? I mean, like, fundamentally. And so feeling like things are being taken away is going to then produce a kind of backlash, as you've been saying. Without getting too deep into Bernie-related things, I am really curious, though, about your take on how campaigns like Bernie Sanders were such a threat to this idea of, oh, well, you know, there's a certain segment of the population that you just have to write off. And then with the whole kind of Bernie to Trump voter seem to then double back on itself and reaffirm these ideas that have been so long entrenched in, you know, whether it's elite politics or kind of mainline media. Talk about that, like the threat and then the affirmation there in terms of how solidarity worked and then was broken. Yeah. I mean, it is pretty twisted that the very fact that Bernie could appeal to voters who might also find Trump appealing was then used in like either, you know, great ignorance or incredibly bad faith, one of the two, to attempt to portray Bernie and his kind of class struggle social democratic campaign for the presidency as racist in some way, especially to emphasize this again, coming from the sort of Clintonite political world, the people who brought us mass incarceration, the war on immigrants. I mean, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama and Joe Biden all voted and it was either 2006 or 2007 for the Secure Fence Act, which signed by into law by George W. Bush, which built like 600, 700 something miles of fencing that looks very much like Trump's wall across the border. It's fencing, not a wall, buddy. Big difference <laughs> between the two political parties. Yeah. It's just a fence. This is like the uh, cages versus fence discussion around how, <laughs> how we housed immigrants. And when, when you're when you're getting to that degree of semantics, it's not a good sign. Well, I, I mean, do you remember uh, it was sometime during the Trump administration that John Favreau, he posted something on Twitter, a photo of two young girls sleeping on the floor of a cage and was like, look at how monstrous this is. And it was monstrous, but it turned out the photo was from under the Obama administration when John was working for him. I mean, yeah. anyhow, that's why none of us will ever stop being triggered by the 2016 primary um, until the days that we die. Mm-hmm. I think fundamentally there is like class-based universal projects that are also fundamentally anti-racist that Bernie was not always perfectly, but I think very powerfully putting forward. And the real historical predecessor to that is Jesse Jackson's Social Democratic Rainbow Coalition project of the 1980s, which was precisely trying to not like today's liberal elite identity politics, not just diversifying 
the upper ranks of this immiserating system that's grinding people into the dust, which is an alienating form of identity politics. It's not the primary thing driving people to the right, but that is alienating, that combination of being like, look how diverse Wall Street is, et cetera. Like that does alienate people. But it's a sort of politics that precisely, that version of identity politics was precisely to emerge, precisely to kind of like brutally replace that rainbow coalition identity politics of the 1980s, which was about stitching all of these particularities into a majority with a universalistic bent. Yeah, I think about for the episode we did on unions and, and film, I watched the film Pride. Basically, it's about the solidarity between in 1984. The coal miners and... Yeah, and the radical gay and lesbian radical groups. Um, they completely erased the fact that the guy who did it's a communist because the whole time I'm watching this movie, I'm like, oh, this guy's totally got to be in the communist party. <laughs> and then I look it up on Wikipedia and it's like, oh yeah, yes. he's totally in the communist party. A but they, they have like one offhanded <laughs> reference and there's like a hammer and sickle in the very far back. He starts doing fundraising as a gay and lesbian group for the miners strike to provide labor support fund. And of course, they have the obligatory scene where he goes into this small town in Wales and faces a lot of bigotry. But then he keeps, he sort of keeps kind of at it, right? He sort of faces the bigotry. Now, look, as someone who's ever faced those kinds of vectors of oppression, it's obviously much more easier said than done. And I don't want to be too romantic about it. And obviously, it's a fictionalization, although much of the basic outline is true. Where he he said, okay, we have a mutual, and they keep repeating this in the movie. It's actually the best part of the movie, I think, is that like, where they say, like, who are the minor strikes enemies? It's Margaret Thatcher, cops, and the tabloid papers. And who is the gay and lesbian community's enemies? Margaret Thatcher, the cops, and the tabloids, right? <laughs> um, and so they have a shared mutual enemy. And he's like, that's good enough reason to go do fundraising for them because we hate the same people. And then he goes to Wales, faces all this kind of discrimination. But of course, they, again, it gets a little squishy and liberal where they kind of overcome the differences and so forth. And and I was watching this and I was thinking like, okay, so this is actually fundamentally a movie about convincing people right? It is a movie about evangelizing, not rather than sort of saying, we're going to write off this whole town. And again, much of the outline is true, right? The, the, the fact is that the miners did strike in the gay and lesbian pride parade in 1985. That is, all that's true. All that's factually accurate. Again, not perfect. Still lots of homophobes. Obviously, the strike itself is largely seen as a failure. But there is some possible, again, if you don't believe in the fundamental premise that we can use working class solidarity to better our lot, and overcome prejudices to do so, then I don't know what the fuck you believe in. <laughs> then we are fucked. <laughs> and then, then we may as well just all go eat a gun. I mean, I'm yeah. being serious here. Like, I don't... Fully agree. Th- without being too Pollyannish <laughs> or romantic, one of the things that annoys me about this idea is that, like, again, that there's this fixed Hulk-like white working class, and our job is to either write them off or tiptoe around them and not ever confront their prejudices. And that I got got to think there's a third way here. <laughs> yeah, and that third way, there's an amazing article by this young political scientist named not like super young, I mean young in terms of like just finished grad school and is like just got a job young. Um, Jared Clemens called I just pulled it up from Freedom Now to Black Lives Matter, retrieving King and Randolph to theorize contemporary white anti-racism. I did an interview with him on it, I think a couple months back, and basically. What he does is goes to Martin Luther King and A. Philip Randolph, the early and mid 20th century black labor and civil rights leader, and looks at their writing and speeches and excavates a just brutal critique of liberal identity politics. Basically, King and Randolph are like elite white allies, you know, garbage, ephemeral, useless. What we need is materially grounded solidarity with white workers, regardless of what ideas, good or bad, 
those white workers have in their head, because that is the only way we are going to build enough power to win freedom. I think that all of these different ways of kind of conceiving of the don't wake the beast <laughs> tiptoeing around nature of this, you know, who is who is centered in this story and this framework, who are its victims, who is to blame. Yeah, is kind of everything here, right? Because it, it tells a story of kind of what we're supposed to believe, which then opens up <laughs> possibilities, but also forecloses a lot of things. And so uh, I think that's a great place to leave it. We, of course, have been speaking with Daniel Denver, host of The Dig podcast on Jackman Radio and author of All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It, which was published in 2020 by Verso Books. Dan, thank you so much for joining us again on Citations Needed. Thank you. It's really fun to be the guest on a podcast. You know, the interesting thing about this is it's sort of a variation on the, like, I was a liberal until I was mugged or I saw, like, a crime committed or I saw a homeless person. And you saw this during a lot of, like, the Never Trumper. Totally post was like if you need to win me over you need to do x y and z it's like there's a sense of like i'm as liberal as you get but the reality is yeah but i saw you know there's all these homeless people so now i have no choice but to vote for a kick-ass sheriff and exactly. it's like yeah like again for the average voter i understand that that's how normal people are but like pundits like they always do this brett stevens and tom nichols would do this like if you know if democrats are going to win me over they need to do x y and z it's like that viral tiktok with the guys like I don't care, you know, like, it's like, well, okay, <laughs> yeah. then go fuck yourself. I, I don't, you know, it's like your vote's going to be dispositive. It's not like you're really important to this coalition. It's like, why are we always having to pander to you exactly. and your fucking boutique list of needs? It's like, you don't like it, tough shit. There's the fucking door. As a form of mass politics, that doesn't really work. And this is where I think the one of the major issues with this is a category error. It's like, I don't care what Bill Maher thinks. I mean, to the extent he influences people, I care, but I don't really personally care what he thinks. But it matters if, and then he ventriloquizes this vague working class, which I do care what they mean because some meaningful percentage of them can decide the fate of elections, unions, campaigns, right? You, you have to convince the quote unquote average people, but I don't think we need to spend a lot of time and effort convincing millionaire pundits, multimillionaire pundits speaking on their behalf, if that makes sense. Well, because they're doing this thing, they're like, you know, some people say, or I've been hearing that, right? They kind of filter and launder their own bullshit through the working man, yeah. Oh, it's like Chris Matthews, suburbs in Pennsylvania, I'm hearing blah, blah, blah. It's like, what, did you go door to door in the suburbs of Pennsylvania? Did you? <laughs> right. Because when he was talking about why, he basically was lobbying why Fetterman was going to lose and why he needed to drop out. Of course, he ended up winning. And he's like, oh, people in the suburbs are just talking about crime, crime nonstop. And it's like, he outperformed Biden by three points. You know, he outperformed Clinton by quite a few points. So you also don't have to necessarily appeal to dominant narratives that are based in oppression and racism. So like, there's that piece of it too, where just because you're like, oh, I've been hearing this, or the media constantly talks about crime, so we have to respond to that. It's like, no, 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 those are built, like those are stories that are built up and maintained. And so part of the work of politics and of organizing, right, is building solidarity around narratives that aren't harmful like that. Right. But uh, so people go, you know, because again, what Chris Matthews is responding to is responding to the fact that he was probably in Pennsylvania or in the general Philadelphia television market 
and saw the nonstop ads about Fetterman right. release being, you know, I think one said, Fetterman letting killers kill again. While, <laughs> exactly. while some gangbanger sprays Uzi fire over a crowd of civilians. Right. Like he saw those and he's like, oh, I bet those lesser people are going to be convinced by this. And it's like, yeah, some percent will. But evidently there was a pretty low ceiling because it ended up not really fucking mattering. And he outperformed the previous two presidential campaigns. So clearly... Again, instead of saying, I saw this ad and it scared me, it's, well, I'm hearing from this mysterious cohort of, it's like, no, it's just you. That's the thing you want. Like you in your hotel room, <laughs> like watching local news. Right. And, and this kind of ventriloquizing, as we've talked about to death, I know we had a whole episode on it, but like you see it with this whole like libs need to chill out stuff all the time, because it's like, just admit that you're older, you're more conservative, like you're white. Again, don't want to be the white guy who's too cool for white people, but like you're white, like clearly that will lead you to have a hair trigger about certain shit. Historically, that's kind of one of our features. And you are projecting that onto other people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, fine. Just be a cranky old white guy who thinks, you know, Oberlin sophomores with purple hair are annoying and like have at it, but don't like, don't say, oh, well, you know, I, you know, they got to cool off or I'm going to be forced to be a Nazi. It's a hostage situation. You know, if you don't lower the capital gains tax, I'm going to shoot this dog. And it's like, well, OK, thanks for your politics of solidarity and grace. Well, right, because it truly affirms that someone's ideology is not firm. Which is, again, for the average voter is fine because our goal is not it's not about moral hygiene. But it's the idea that like, oh, you're. You know, if, if you don't if you don't do this thing, I'm so close. Yeah. I'm so close to doing the thing that I'm telling you that I even know is harmful. <laughs> like I'm gonna be forced to do terrible things and to reveal myself as like a fascist white nativist, but all you gotta do is like not call racists racists. And then we can all like realize that like, oh no, we're in this together. But if you actually say things that like offend my sensibilities that I can then launder through other people's assumed sensibilities that you'll believe on behalf of them when I can't really speak for myself because I'm clearly in a different tax bracket, then like, yeah, you have to change your messaging to appeal to me. Because they don't want to do the other thing, which again, I don't want to valorize one election too much, but it's like, yeah, clearly Fetterman his poll numbers on crime were low because they ran nonstop psycho ads about it. But guess what? And this is what we talked about with Dan. He went and he found other things you could build solidarity coalitions around, like higher wages, like better Medicare or Medicaid, like being pro-union, protecting unions in Pennsylvania, which are now making a slight bit of a comeback. And so that's sort of the nature of politics. One current wants us to just write everyone off as loser racist and let's send in Jordan Klepper to, to go put this microphone in front of a bunch of dipshit MAGA slack-jawed yokels. That really low effort kind of political orientation. The second one once they, and they conveniently have the exact same take, which is that they're all intractably and permanently fixed racists and therefore we have to become racist or therefore we have to become transphobic or we have to speak in code about crime. But of course the third way is like, look, you just need them to pull a fucking lever for you on election day or need them to fill out a union card or need them to have, you know, you don't need to be drinking buddies to them necessarily. That's how political coalitions work. So why don't we try to find other things that appeal to people that transcend those differences? Right. Find the shared values without relinquishing any of your values, right? Which you don't need to relinquish your values. And we don't need to say like, oh, this policy is racist, but also it hurts white working class people. Here's why. Like this was a sort of, again, this was a common left-wing pillar of left-wing sort of propaganda up until about five years ago. This was sort of a normal way of approaching it rather than saying like, oh, actually let's just give up and let's have two versions of the same defeatist politics. One of which of course is primarily concerned with never, ever, ever having to adopt any economic populism. And the other one of which is just about the politics of being morally superior and having greater moral hygiene and being better than 
sort of those people. And um, I think that's not a binary that I think is very useful and it's incredibly popular because it's sort of the vast majority of takes that we see pumped out about this topic. Well, that will do it for this episode of Citations Needed. Thank you all for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at Citations Pod, Facebook, Citations Needed, and become a supporter of the show through patreon.com slash citations needed podcast. All your support through Patreon is so incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener funded. And as always, a very special shout out goes to our critic level supporters on Patreon. They include Brad Hayward, Zach Cathcart, Lorenzo Mitchell, Eric Knight, Morgan Green Hopkins, Ed Zitt, Corporate Zombie, Daniel Sweat, Eric Joyner, Buzz Among Us, Stinky Pete, D.L. Singfield, J.M. Geralt, Chris Vincent, Nigel Kirby, Scott Roth, Porter Schutz, Zachary Henson, Josh Durlam, Joe Wengert, Steely Dan Halen, Douglas, Danger Manly, Green New Neil, Trazdat, Brick Shop Audio, Supple Old Man, Tika, David McMurray, MSP, Dash X, Chris Sarah, Ben Lazar, Joe Schmo, James Michaela, Greg Westney, Drew Johnson, Max Belanger, David Bettner, Brendan O'Connor, Ultra Miraculous, Zappo, Sturm Wyvern, Darren Brady, Bart DeCourcy, Rob, Mr. Honeycrisp, Justin Harper, Max Wilsey, Blake Bunell, Zenia Zadvornik, Brendan Hines, Doc Reitzel, Philip Moss, Rulo's Bar, Shockfist, Weedlore, Backups, Care, and of course, Computer Scare. I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. Thanks again for listening to Citations Needed. Our senior producer is Florence Burrow-Adams. Producer is Julianne Tweeton. Production assistant is Trenda Lightburn. Newsletter by Marco Cardellano. Transcriptions are by Morgan McCasin. The music is by Granddaddy. Thanks again, everyone. We'll catch you next time.